All right. Well, I almost got a clap on that prayer. Did you hear that? You guys are excited this morning. All right. Good. Hey, before I forget, I need to uh, give a shout out to somebody who is at home today with COVID. So they told me they're going to be watching online and I said, you stay home. (laughs) Yeah, we don't want to share. You know, we want to have warm fellowship, but we don't want to have that. Uh, So I'm going to look at the camera for a minute. Hey, Lisa, good to have you with us. If you're still with us. Yeah, good. So welcome. All right. It's good to be sick. Wait, wait, wait. Did, did I say that right? Did you hear that right? I had a conversation with one of the ladies as they, she came in this morning. And we were talking, both of us talking about we've got the flu or COVID or something. Kind of now, you know, in the rearview mirror, we've just come through it. We're feeling much better. And she made the comment. That sometimes I think God allows us to get sick so we will remember what a blessing it is to be healthy most of the time. So guys, even in those difficult and those sick moments, God is at work. Would you believe that? Well then say amen, give me an amen louder. God is at work. Yeah, okay. So are you saying that even in the things that we don't understand, even in the hard things that look like obstacles, that even in the things that... We think, no, God, how could you allow that? That God is still at work? Would you agree with me? He is? Okay, because this morning, we're in one of those places. In Mark chapter 14, that's where we pick up the story of the Gospels as we're walking through the book of Mark. This is about Jesus and Passover and communion. Did I just go out? No. Okay, here I'm ready to get this football commentator mic on okay jesus passover and communion is where we're going to be this morning chapter 14 book of mark now jesus is going to take some elements from the passover that have been celebrated for 15 almost 1500 years since moses led the people since god led moses and moses led the people out of the wilderness, or out of the, uh, the land of Egypt, out of slavery. And then they, they were another 40 years in the wilderness. But as God led them, they had a meal that was called Passover. Jesus is going to use that as the occasion to take the old symbolism of some of the things of Passover, and he's going to give brand new meaning to it. Now, think about with me the old symbolism. In Passover proper, once it was instituted in the book of Exodus, there were four particular elements that from the very beginning were part of the Passover meal. One, somebody help me. What was one? A lamb. Yeah, not only a lamb, but a lamb that was sacrificed at the right time. And then a lamb that was consumed. That is, that it you, you took the lamb the sacrificial symbol, you're taking it in and ingesting it. It's a picture of ingesting Jesus, quite honestly. So we have the the Passover lamb, the roasted lamb. It was killed on the 14th of the month of Nisan. Some of us will remember that in the old days as the month of Datsun, (laughs) right? (laughs) Some of you are looking at me going, what are you talking about? That was an old, that was a joke that only us mature people will understand because Nissan used to be Datsun Corporation, okay? Okay, let me then, don't do that one next service, okay? 
the Passover lamb to be killed? And then what happened with the blood of the Passover lamb? Back, I'm talking about the very, very first one in Egypt when God said, I'm going to deliver you guys, but here's the way we're going to do it. It's the 10th plague. I'm going to deliver you guys. You're going to kill this Passover lamb, one without spot, without blemish, a perfect lamb. Do you see the picture of Jesus? Uh, you're going to kill this thing, and then you're going to take a hyssop branch, which is, which is a branch from a tree that had a whole bunch of stringy, fibra, fibery things on it. It looked like a paintbrush, a rudimentary paintbrush. You're going to take this hyssop thing, you're going to dip it into the blood, and do you remember what you did with the blood? You put it on the doorpost, left, right, and on the top. Wow, what an interesting dot to dot of the cross of Christ. Anyway, so you're going to do that. Okay, so as they every year for 1,500 years commemorated the Passover, one of the items that they had, always had, was the roasted lamb, the Passover lamb. What's another item that they had? Unleavened bread, which means bread without yeast. Most of us love to bite into a soft, fluffy cinnamon roll or something like that. You know, something that you, you do, try and do a cinnamon roll without yeast. The without yeast back, and it's kind of flatbread. It just doesn't rise. And so in the time leading up to Jesus, the almost 1,500 years of celebrating this meal, that flatbread, that unyeasted, unleavened bread, it meant something to those people from what happened at, at the, the deliverance from Egypt. You know what it meant? It meant you don't have much time, so don't make bread that is going to be allowed to rise because that takes a lot of time. So you're going to just, don't even let it rise, just cook it up, Fry it up, whatever you're going to do. <laughs> Navajo taco it up, whatever you're going to do. And then you cook it, but don't take the time to rise because when the Lord says move, it's time to, it's time to move. You can't be saying the Lord says move and you say, no, I'm sorry, I have bread in the oven. It's rising. No, 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 you rise. Let the bread flat. You rise and you go. So we're going to have flat bread, which to them they reminded them of how God's deliverance was quick. When he said go, it was go. It wasn't wait. You follow me? Okay, so we got the roasted lamb. We got the flatbread. What was another of the symbols? Bitter herbs. And the other was wine. Bitter herbs. How many of you like horseradish? What's wrong with you people? That is horrible. I remember back when Jan and I were early married and, and I was at the time, I, I, and I almost graduated from seminary. I didn't quite graduate. I was a, a class shy. But while I was going to seminary, we were married first year or second, whatever it was of marriage. No, it was about the fourth, fifth. I don't remember what it was. But I do remember who I'm married to and how long we've been married and that this last week was our 42nd anniversary. I do remember that. So I remember the important stuff. But when we were down in the L.A. area and I was going to seminary, Jan was working for a company. The company had a big dinner. And we went, company's paying for it, of course we're going. We went to dinner and they had steak and potatoes and good stuff. And, but the restaurant was one of those where the ambient 
the ambiance, whatever, was really, really nice and kind of formal. The lights were low. And so I had that baked potato. And I thought that there was this cup of sour cream over here. And so I slapped that stuff on the baked potato. Okay, can you picture what bitter herbs is all about? Bitter herbs were to represent what? Yeah, the bondage and the bitter slavery that they had gone through, that God delivered them from. It was bitter. It was a hard time. The bitter herbs. That was the third thing. What was the fourth thing? Somebody already said it. The wine. Now, in the initial Passover meal, there was a cup of wine. As history developed for the Jewish people, by the time Jesus is around, they have four cups of wine. And you go, wow, and they're all sober at the end of this thing, you know. But remember that wine in the Bible, it means the fruit of the grape. And it was, whether it was unfermented all the way up to fermented, it was still called wine. So I don't really think that all of the Jews were getting loaded as they were having Passover. I think probably they were drinking diluted wine because the issue was not... Now, I can't imagine a culture where people would go to a party just to get drunk. Can you imagine that? (laughs) Guys, that's America. (laughs) I don't think they were doing that. They were taking cups of wine to remember something incredible that God had done in the past. And one of those cups was the cup that represented, it's the cup of redemption. It represented the blood of the Passover lamb. So you have these beautiful symbols that for almost 1,500 years the Jewish people have been doing. Jesus, 33 years old, every year that they came to Jerusalem to do Passover, and it was required, if it was at all possible, for a Jewish man to bring his family to Jerusalem for Passover. So it's possible that Jesus maybe even had 33 Passovers in Jerusalem. But every single one of them, as he grew up as a kid, as he was a teenager, and as he was a young adult, all the <laughs> that was that that fire truck that I wanted for Christmas that somebody brought in, and so every year of the life of Jesus, he had gone to Passover meals and quietly received the symbols of God's incredible victory fifteen hundred years ago. So understand. These were symbols. The Passover meal was something that was a symbol, a set of symbols about God's miraculous deliverance from slavery in the past. Follow me so far? What Jesus does is they have Passover together with his disciples and he gives two of the elements, the wine and the unleavened bread. He gives them completely new and different meaning. Similar meaning with the wine, completely different meaning with the bread. And he started on Mark, which recorded in Mark 14, he started a tradition that his people would follow until the Apostle Paul says later in 1 Corinthians that this is a tradition. This is a, some call it a sacrament. I don't like the word sacrament a whole lot because the definition of sacrament is that which initiates God's grace coming to us. I I got news for you. You don't need to do anything 
for God's grace to come at you. You just need to receive it and believe. You don't do something to earn his grace. So I, I, I just don't like the word. Maybe that's because I didn't quite finish my seminary training. I don't know. But I don't like the implication that we do something that he, that he's, that he's, he has to respond with a blessing. You, you follow me? Not just me. Use the word sacrament if you want. Just know that I cringe every time you say it. Okay? But Jesus began something that has been modeled for the last 2,000 years. And then according to the Apostle Paul, it's something that the church is called to model as often as you do it. Some people do it weekly. Some people do it monthly. We typically have communion monthly. It's what we call it, communion or the Lord's Supper. Some do it monthly. Some do it quarterly. Some, even the Brethren Church, they do it either two or four times a year and each time they do it, they gather together and that's what their whole service is about, to have communion together and part of it is they wash each other's feet. Whoa. Now, if I told you we were going to do that this morning and we passed out towels right now, how many of you would feel a little bit anxious? Most of us would be like, I don't want anybody washing my feet. I don't mind washing somebody else's feet, but I don't want nobody seeing what mine look like. You know, some of you haven't cleaned between your toes. I'm not going to go there. No, this is let me. Oh, <laughs> you got the picture, right? But here's the deal. As often as we do this, which comes from Passover, but is now a totally new meaning. I want you to know that every time Jesus had Passover meal together, as he was a kid, as he was a young adult, even in his 20s, and at 30, 31, and 32, he knew that he was going to, this day, create a whole new symbol, symbolism for it. I mean, it was not an, it was not an accident. He's going to create a symbol, whereas in the past, it was a symbol of God's physical deliverance from the people under the bondage of slavery to Egypt. God delivered them miraculously. You remember the story, the Red Sea, right? You remember all that story? God did it. And Passover was a sign that all those who believed in him enough to do this Passover meal, and they put the blood on their door and all of that, that the angel of death that God sent to destroy the firstborn of Pharaoh, even to the animals, I mean, he got their attention, that all those who had the blood covering their household were spared. The angel passed over. The angel of death passed over. You see why it's called Passover. And so you had that situation and they were always remembering the victory of the past. Jesus said, no, I'm going to give you a new victory in the future. That was the old covenant. I'm going to give you these now represent the new covenant. The new, and you go, covenant we don't even use that word. Yeah, we do in legal papers and stuff. We use the word covenant, but we practically don't use that word as a culture. What does covenant mean? It means an agreement, an arrangement. It means a contractual obligation. Jesus said the old obligation is done. The old obligation actually pictured the new, and I'm fulfilling it. And the new obligation, this whole thing of communion, the bread, the wine, it is going to represent from now on for all those who come into my family. It represents not the Passover lamb. It represents me as the lamb. 
Did you know that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 even called Jesus our Passover lamb? In case you missed it, back when the Apostle, or John, John the Baptist, not the Apostle, but John the Baptist, John 1.29, he says, when Jesus came out to be baptized and he sees Jesus coming, do you remember what he said? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So as for years, 1,500 years, they celebrated the death of the Passover lamb that brought them redemption from Egypt. Now Jesus is saying, that's me, guys. My death is going to bring you freedom from sin, from guilt, from punishment, from hell. And so every time we do this, we did, you go, well, I don't even see the communion elements. We're talking communion. Are we going to do communion today? No. (laughs) We did it last week. And we'll do it, we typically do it monthly. Now, if you want to do communion today, stick around for the next service. The Baptist Church, I'll be preaching there this morning. We are going to have communion at the conclusion of that. So if you want to, you know, practice the joint service next week by coming and hanging around today. It'll be fun. Anyway. Do you see the importance of this moment in the history of Jesus with the disciples? That's what I want you to see. This changed the perspective from looking backwards to looking forwards. I just want to make kind of a practical comment. Too many people move forward but keep their eyes looking backwards. And either the glory of what happened in the past, that they just, that, that's where their identity is and what happened in the past, or the hurt of what happened in the past. And this whole story reminds me that Jesus is telling his disciples, guys, it's time to quit moving forward by looking backward. It's time to move forward into the new thing that I'm calling you to walk in. Does that make sense to you? That's what this is about in the Lord's Supper. So let's read through. First, I want to try to read this setup pretty quickly for you on uh, verse 12 to 16. This is the setup for this last Passover that Jesus shares with the disciples. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. Now, remember, Passover was the first day of a seven day feast called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In this particular week, in this particular year, Passover was on a Thursday night. It it follows a lunar cycle, so it's not always the same date every year. But in this particular week, at the time of Jesus, it's a Thursday night. He's going to have Passover. Remember, Remember, their day started when? Not in the morning, not with sunrise, at sunset. And so while the Passover lambs are being slaughtered in the evening... Before it becomes evening again, Jesus is going to be hanging on a cross. He's about 12, 14 hours away from being nailed to a cross when he has Passover with his disciples. It's close. And you've got to know, he's thinking about his suffering and his death. Jesus. When, on the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, disciples said, hey, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, they were out of town at the time, out of Jerusalem, and it was required that all males come into the precincts of Jerusalem to have Passover. So they got to come, if they're going to follow the Jewish ordinances, they got to come into the city. Now, there's something going on in the city right now since 
This is Thursday since Sunday when Jesus showed up on the back of a little donkey and they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who came in, comes in the name of the Lord. That there, there have been, there's been a movement with the pre- chief priests, the scribes, the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. There's a movement with the Jewish people that they want to do something to Jesus. You know what they want to do to him? They want to kill him. They want to kill him. So where do you want us to eat? You know, it's like we've got to do this thing undercover. If we're going back into the city where they're trying to kill you, they're trying to find you so that they can pull you apart. The book of Luke says that they, the, the Jewish leaders, they were looking for a way to kill him, for a setup to kill him, but they were afraid because of the people. Because the people loved him. And so he goes, where, where should we eat this? Verse 13, so he sent two of his disciples. Well, we find out in, uh, I believe it's Matthew. Matthew or Luke, I forget which one, actually identifies who the two disciples were. Peter and John. (laughs) Same guys that raced to the tomb when they heard that Jesus, these are competitive guys. These are testosterone-filled, competition-filled guys. They go... He sent two of his disciples and he said to them, so they're going into the city, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Now, this was a unique thing because in that culture, you didn't often have the men carrying the water. Who carried the water? The women. So here's a signal. You mean Jesus maybe set this up beforehand? Did you realize that Jesus sets up a whole lot of things in our life beforehand? Now, when I first read this, I'm talking years and years ago, I thought, Oh, wow, this is so neat because the men, the, the guy doesn't know he's going to host it. Jesus is the one that knows what's going on. The disciples don't know what's going on. And so Jesus says, go and see this guy. And then you tell him the master wants to have Passover there. And he's going to say, yeah. And, and, but I think now, as I know the scripture a little better, I don't think it was one of those nobody knows what's going on. They're just going to say the right things at the right time. I think Jesus had set it up in the same way that he, is, he masterfully sets up things in our life. You can disagree with me, and that's okay. But either way, there's this guy. Go into the city. Find the guy carrying a pitcher of water. So you probably got to go to a well, an area where there's some water. You look for the guy that's carrying the water. And, where, and follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself, I believe it's Matthew that says, the owner of the house is the one that was fetching water, which is actually a real odd thing in their culture. And he himself will show you a large upper room furnished, ready, prepare for us there. So it's like two disciples. I can see Peter and John going into the city and going, do you think we're really going to find a guy carrying water? But you see, sometimes Jesus asks us to walk in a little bit of faith. I told you to look for this. I told you this is going to happen. So go and watch it happen. You know, in some of chapter 13, when we looked at the signs about the coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus, and I really appreciate, guys, the, the positive feedback that many of you gave me on the, those particular studies of what the signs would be and all of that. But I want to tell you, according to Mark 13, all those signs birth pangs. It shows that the world is in labor looking for the coming of Messiah, the second coming. But when something else clicks, then it's a convergence of everything and we're super close. He told us what that something else was in Mark 13. 
And that is when the fig tree buds forth, which is a clear picture of Israel. It's a clear picture of what happened in 1948. Guys, with Israel becoming a nation again, fulfilling that prophecy, all of the other signs that are going on technologically, politically, geopolitically, the things going on. Guys, I just need to tell you, Jesus could come before Christmas. He could come before I finish this sermon. Now, I could also be a a rebellious heart and just keep preaching until he finally comes. That would wear you guys out. (laughs) I'm not going to do that. But here's the deal. He could come. Why? Why do I say that? It's because the, the signs that he said with Israel budding forth as a nation again in 1948, the convergence of the signs has happened. We are in the last days. Peter calls it the last of the last days in the Greek. Anyway, all that to say Jesus knows what he's doing. (laughs) He's he's, he's got some plans. Just follow him. He knows what he's doing. This guy's going to show you the room. So, verse 16. The disciples, they went out. They came to the city. This is Peter and John. Did you think they raced? I don't know. They, They did in John 20, back to the tomb. They go, they find it just as he had told them. Just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. A wonderful, wonderful verse. So Passover is prepared. Here it is, verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. Now, how many disciples? Twelve. How many of those disciples are going to be there at the end of the Passover celebration? Eleven. One of them's going to split, and that's Judas Iscariot, the, the, the betrayer. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. So sundown comes with the twelve. They were reclining at the table, which to me is an incredibly uncomfortable way of, instead of sitting at a table, you kind of recline, and it's, I couldn't eat that way. <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be 15, 20 pounds lighter if I ate that way. Anyway, they're there reclining and eating. And what we find out in one of the other Gospels is we see who's sitting next to Jesus on each side. One of them is John. He's nicknamed the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's right there on one side. The other, guess who? Judas. So the two guys that are seated next to Jesus which would be considered to be the places of honor in this meal, are John and his betrayer, Judas. Now, something happens between verse 17 and verse 18. Mark doesn't deal with it, but John, who gives us much more detail in what Jesus taught and what Jesus said at this Passover, tells us that when Jesus saw that none of the disciples were humble enough to get on the floor and wash the feet of one another. It says, Jesus, seeing them gathered, took a towel, got on the feet, on his knees, and washed the feet of all his disciples. He could have gone from John all the way around to Judas, or start with Judas. I suspect that he started with John and went around Because by the time he gets to Peter, which you know Peter was so competitive, he was probably sitting next to John on one side or Judas on the other. He wanted to be close to Jesus. By the time he gets to Peter, you remember what he says? Peter says, no, 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 I'm not going to have you wash my feet. It's like, you're humbling yourself before me. I I don't want you to wash my feet. And and Jesus says to Peter, look, Peter, if if I don't wash your feet, you got no part with me. 
You got nothing with me. You better let me do this. And then Peter says, well, then if you're going to wash my feet, wash my whole body. Just get my head, get everything. And Jesus said, no, I don't need to wash all uh, wash you completely. You are already clean. It's kind of like this. When you come to Christ and he forgives you of your sin, guess how many sins are forgiven you? Uh huh. Are you clean? Yeah, but then what happens? And you go walking around in a dirty, corrupt, God-hating and hostile world toward the gospel. It's kind of like you get dirt mud on your feet. So as you walk in the world, and it's not like you need to get saved, washed, cleansed by his blood all over again. You just need to get kind of sanctified by your feet need to get cleaned up a little bit. You got junk. I mean, come on, you've been walking in this world, stepping on little lamb poo-poo and all of this stuff. We sometimes need to get what touches the world clean. Follow me? That's the picture. Well, he gets to finishes Peter, and then he says, he says, you, you, don't, you, you don't need me to wash all of you. You're already clean, Peter. And then he says, but not all of you are clean. And it says he spoke that of Judas because he knew what was in the heart of Judas. Man, I just get goosebumps when I even say that. So as they're reclining at the table, and then we jump back into verse 18, we're going to skip. If you want to see what all the dialogue that happened at this supper, read John chapter 13. Verse 18 here in Mark, as they were reclining at the table and eating. Notice that they're already eating. What are they eating? Probably the lamb. Jesus said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I, not I. Now, when Jesus said this, apparently there was such a ruckus with, is it, who, who is it, who is it? And here's what it says that in, in John, the book of John, it says that Peter motions to John, who's next to Jesus, and he says, ask him who it is. And so John leans over close while probably there's a lot of ruckus, ruckus and conversation going on with the other disciples, John says, Lord, who is it? Which one? Probably kind of at a whisper. And he says, the one which I will dip a morsel and give it to him. That's the one. And then it says, immediately he took a morsel. Now, most people feel and many of the... the Many of the translations even call that bread. Maybe it was. I'm not sure. It could have been a piece of lamb. But he took a morsel and dipped it. What did he dip it into? You, some of you guys would like this. Horseradish. You know, your bitter herbs. He dipped it into the yucky juice. And they would, if it was bread, they would dip it in until it is completely soaking. And then he gave it to Judas. It says Judas took it and then Jesus told him, Judas, what you're going to do, go do quickly. Get going. And it says immediately at that point, he didn't wait, immediately at that point, Judas leaves. Goes out and does what he does with the chief priests. He sets up the betrayal. He'd already talked to him earlier and uh, I believe it's Matthew says that he had already set up what he was going to do. Now he goes and he does it. I think it's at that moment that Jesus goes on with the next thing which he's going to do. 
which is to take the two elements, the bread and the wine, and give them new meaning. I actually kind of think, and some people, this is speculation. The scripture doesn't say it this clearly, but just connecting the dots of the different uh, gospels, this is what it sounds like happened. Judas leaves and he goes off. And the other disciples say, where did he go? Maybe he told him to go buy something and give it to the poor because he was the money man. You got to know that they trusted Judas. I mean, they don't take, you know, who's the, who's, the, who's the snake around this place? Let's make him the treasurer. No, he was the one who looked on the external. He looked really, really good. They made him treasurer. And so they thought, the other disciples thought he was going to go do something good. He was going to go help somebody, go do something for the poor. He was going to go do something good. Jesus knows. I got to get this guy out of here. He's the spirit of betrayal. It actually says that Satan entered into his heart and bam, there he went. I think that cleared it for Jesus to then say, okay, guys, now I've got something really special for you. The idea is those who don't follow and surrender to Jesus have no part in this thing called the Lord's Supper, in this thing called communion. It's not just something that, you know, we go to church, we have a snack when we have communion. That's not what it's about. I have to clear out the non-believer to get the rest of you guys. I'm going to give you something super special. And it's going to be a picture that changes the world. They're going to do for the next thousands of years. So while, verse 22, it says, while they were eating, back in, um, in Mark still, while they were eating, he then took some bread, and that would be the unleavened bread. That's what they had. And after blessing, he broke it. Note the pattern. He broke the bread, but he first blessed it. He broke the bread, but he first blessed it. He blessed the bread and then did what? Broke it. There's such a picture, guys, that we like bread. We come to Jesus just like we are, and he blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. But if he's going to make us useful, he's got to break us. He's got to break our pride and our our dependency on, on us. He broke the bread, and then he gave it to them. And he said, take it. This is my body. And when he had taken a cup, and most believe, I think it makes the most sense, it was the third cup in the Passover celebration, the one that was the redemption cup that represented the blood of the Passover lamb. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. So note that the first communion, they all drank from the same cup. <laughs> Something that we could never get, a, get away with during COVID restrictions, right? And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant. As John puts it out, I think it's John or maybe Luke, says this is the new covenant of my blood. The blood, the new covenant, the new agreement that is established by my blood. Not the Passover lamb, my blood, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, you'll never again drink of the fruit of the vine. I will never drink of the, again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Do you realize the implication is when we are with Jesus in the kingdom age, even in heaven, we might continue to do communion as a picture, a memorial picture. See, communion for these guys was looking to the future. Actually, he was looking about 10 to 12 hours in the future. But then in heaven... When we're with Jesus, we'll do this. And man, the meaning is going to be so much more rich when we can see the nail prints in his hand. We can see the crown marks on his head, the, the, the cut in his side. And we will say, 
I get it. Now, both, I think it's both Luke and the Apostle Paul later when he's recording this in 1 Corinthians 11, they are very, very clear in saying that Jesus said that this represents my body or to do this in remembrance of me. See, there's a theology that says that when Jesus gave this to the disciples and he gave the bread, he broke the bread, he gave it to them, that it became the literal body of Christ. That would have totally freaked them out. That the blood or the wine became the literal blood of Jesus. I don't think that's what happens because Jesus' own words, and by the way, that theology doesn't come from the Bible, it comes from other tradition and other decrees of religious leaders. But Jesus said, do this, as you do this, remember me. That's called the memorial. We're doing it as a memorial. You do the, blur, the bread, do it as a memorial. You do the, the wine, do it as a memorial. And when we do, just to let you guys know, if you've never had communion with us, we do grape juice. We do unfermented grape juice. We realize that a lot of people in our congregation have come out of abusive past when it comes to alcohol. And we just choose. We figure it's a scriptural okay thing to do. It would be okay to use wine too. I tell you, I I went to a a church not too many months ago, sitting next to my little granddaughter. This is actually my son-in-law's church up in uh, Vancouver. And they have communion when they do it on the inside or the outside. I forget which one, but there's wine. And then on the outside, there's grape juice. And my little granddaughter, who was like seven at the time, maybe eight, she told me, she said, Opa, the ones on there are real wine, so take the ones on the outside. I said, okay. So whichever one she told me, I don't remember the detail, but I took the one that she told me, and when I took it, it was like, I about spit it out. It was actual wine. I was like, what What is this? But it doesn't matter what the item is. What matters is what it symbolizes. I mean, in the Jesus movement, there were people on the beach that did communion with Coke and Fritos. (laughs) And it's nothing magic about the element. It's what it represents. So what is communion? That's as far as we're going. Well, verse 26. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Guess what happened at the Mount of Olives, guys? He went to praying, and then he got arrested. But he gave them this. Two elements. This bread now represents my body. Did you know that the Scripture tells us that your sin was placed in the body of Jesus? He bore on the cross your sins and my sins. Wow. How did that happen? I wasn't even alive then. That's the mystical, incredible eternality of God, the sovereign God. When Jesus hung on a cross for six hours and the last three hours were absolutely dark, when he said, Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? You know what happened? Before I was even born, the sins that I would commit were placed on him. That's why God forsook him. That's why God the Father stood back. And Jesus said, this bread now represents me giving my body. What's my body for? Just like when they would, every time that they would do a sacrifice in the last 1,500 plus years, or almost 1,500 years after the law, they would lay their hands on the head of the lamb or whatever animal to be sacrificed. 
They would, and that was a picture that their sins were being imputed. They were being given. They were transferred over to that animal. And that's what Jesus did, guys. If we receive him as our Lord, if we repent and follow him, all of our sins are on him. So when I go to heaven, if Satan is allowed to show up and be a uh, prosecuting attorney and he says, ah, you know Mick, he's a pretty good guy. He's a lot better than that assistant pastor Jason. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he's a pretty good guy, but he still had sinful thoughts. He still had this. And then Jesus, our advocate, our defense attorney says, yeah, he did. And those are the ones I died for. I died for every sin. He's clean. He now has my cleansing. And that's the purpose of the blood. The, the Old Testament says, book of Leviticus, that the life is in the blood. And so when we have Jesus' blood, when we receive him, the Bible says it's like his blood cleanses us from all sin. We can't, we can't do anything to earn our way to heaven. It's just, Lord, I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. I receive you. You take my sins. Oh, I accept that. You became the substitution for me. I accept that. And guess what you get out of that, guys? You get eternity in heaven, which I'm going to tell you. It really bugs me when I watch TV and I have a commercial and they tell me what I deserve. Because I'm, and I always tell my wife when we when we have a commercial and say, oh, you know, even McDonald's, you deserve a break today, so get out and go away to McDonald's. And so why do we deserve a break? No, the truth is we want a break. It's not what we deserve. If we got what we deserved, we would all be in hell. But we don't get what we deserve. We get what he has graciously offered to us, but we have to receive it as a gift. So when we take communion, it is a declaration that the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse me from sin and to take me to heaven. That's why we do it. So the next time we do that, this is almost a good lead up to do it today, huh? The next, like I say, next service we will. The next time we do that, just remember, it's all about what Jesus did when we couldn't do nothing. And he loves to cleanse people who are sinners. You're too big of a job for him. No. Not at all. You're a good challenge for him. But you're not too big. And he will cleanse you. I want to encourage you as we hit Christmas. Remember Jesus came to die for us. And then he rose again. He didn't stay dead. It wasn't a tragedy. It was God's plan since before the foundation of the earth. It was God's plan He died for you. Guys, he loves you so much. And if you don't know him, make today the day that you say, Lord, if you're real, reveal yourself to me. I want to follow you if you're real. If you're the real deal, show me. Guess what? He loves that kind of a challenge. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the uh, word this morning. Thank you, Lord, for hearts that are open to hear your word. And I pray, God, that you would be honored and glorified by the way that we exalt you. Lord, the way that we don't make an idol out of this stuff, but we do it in obedience to remember the incredible, merciful thing that you did to buy us eternity in heaven. Perfect place, perfect God with imperfect people because we're covered by a perfect Savior. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Guys, keep your head back.